0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz.
1: And welcome back, fellow patriots and American taxpayers, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here with Daniel Horowitz as your host in our Northern Command Center today. Tomorrow we will be in our Central Command Center, your one and only independent conservative news and views talk show. And as we've noted throughout the week, when it comes to foreign policy, national defense, boy, do we need an independent voice. We need an affirmative vision that could speak beyond the false dichotomies of, oh, this Democrat president did this, so I'm gonna do the opposite. This Republican did this, so I'm gonna do I'm gonna do the opposite. What is it we hope to accomplish in the world and juxtaposed to our homeland security? And the terrible immigration policies that we have both at our border and through our visa system that we speak about every day here at the Conservative Review, our articles every day, our domestic criminal policies as well. What is it we're doing abroad that really is worth it and speaks to the magnitude of our national security? Today, I have a piece out Um by the time this show comes out, you're gonna you're gonna see it already on what we're doing in Niger. Yes, Niger, the West, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we are engaging in dental work, um, for some p- folks in the villages there. Uh, but you know, it was a dangerous place. It's one thing if we do social work with our military. It's quite another thing to do social work in a combat zone. As you all know, two years ago we lost two or four soldiers. Um, in, in an ambush there. And the point I I bring out from that article is we might have a purpose in some places, but we need to articulate that. We need, we need an operational audit of everything we're doing. This really began this heavy footprint in other countries with no understanding of what we hope to accomplish with Iraq. That's 800-pound gorilla in the room. Thankfully, we are finally having a national debate over that. Now, as I noted yesterday, I don't agree with the catalyst for the debate. It's quite ironic that the most justified strike is what's spawning that debate. Finally, something that affected us, the Iranian arm, the IRGC that most affected our assets for 30 years, and certainly recently, the last couple of months, suddenly, the left is concerned about what we're doing there. And that's That's ridiculous. But nonetheless, the fact that I believe Trump was justified in what he did is not a contradiction to my view that we need to really ask the tough questions about what we're doing there in the first place. And the fact that us being there is actually helping Iran. In fact, the two work in concert. And I think the president is really um, has always felt this way and is really moving in that direction. With us today is a special guest to take a deep dive into Iraq. What has happened, where we are now, what we should do. Dan Caldwell is executive executive director of Concerned Veterans of America and he served time in Iraq in that critical era last decade during that Sunni insurgency really working in the most dangerous zones there in the Anbar province on the ground understanding the stakes there, understanding that Iraq is more than a game of risk. There's intractable tribal warfares that we're just not able to solve to get a better sense of what has happened there, what is going on on the ground. It's a pleasure to bring to the Conservative Review for the first time, Dan Caldwell. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan.
0: Hey, Daniel, thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dan, yours is the type of voice that I think is not heard enough on you know some of these cable shows with all these pseudo experts but you really had a lot of experience on the ground there i want to start off just bringing this back in history and and then come to the here and now so i was kind of young when the iraq war started you know college age and wasn't doing this professionally certainly didn't have a byline i didn't have a public voice but i supported the iraq war to me i i watched during the clinton era as saddam hussein continuously shot at the nato aircraft um, violated the terms of surrender from the gulf war then eventually kicked out the weapons inspectors we looked weak after 9-11 it looked like we weren't deterring him so it made sense to me to go in there but as a young skull full of mush i never thought about well um what do you do with the country afterwards i mean saddam by hook or by crook and more by crook held it together br- brutally but oh you got the shias oh you got iran next door oh you got the sunnis what do you do with that right doesn't it from your experience my question to you is starting from the very beginning was this operation ever going to
0: work I think that we lost the Iraq War the minute we pulled down Saddam's st- statue in Fido Square in 2003. There's that famous video of my fellow Marines, it was, it was 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines with attachments from 1st Tank Battalion. They hooked up um, what is called an M88 tank recovery vehicle, and they helped the um, Shia protesters pull down Saddam's statue. And It was at that point that, in effect, we lost the Iraq war and we handed Iraq over to Iran. Uh, The die was cast and everything from that point on was, in effect, just mitigating damage. And it, it ultimately could not have changed the outcome that that was an incredibly bad decision that was changing the balance of power in the Middle East for the worst. It was empowering Iran. It was unleashing Sunni radicalism that had been repressed in the country by Saddam Hussein. And it ultimately led to things like the Syrian civil war. Uh, It contributed to um, weapons flows and flows of experienced fighters across the region and ultimately into other parts of the world. Um, It had negative impacts on Europe, obviously, you know, by creating refugee flows from the Middle East. Um, And it ultimately led us to who we are today, where we're facing yet another endless war in the Middle East with Iran, which, in my opinion, is not in America's best interest. Iran is not a good country. It is is usually a bad actor in the Middle East. But the reality is, is that they are not an enormous threat to our safety and security right now at this point in time. And because of decisions made back in 2003, we are currently in the position that we are today.
1: So that's an important point that, you know, I'm a big Iran hawk in the sense that more than all the Sunnis, they have harmed us. They do have the tools of statecraft to block the Straits of Hormuz. They've engaged in piracy in the Persian Gulf. But a lot of some of our friends, some, you know, certainly a lot of the Republican establishment foreign policy thinkers, they're saying that, yes, Daniel, you're right. Iran's a problem, and that's why we need to be in Iraq. But what you just said is that. By us being in Iraq, we are protecting the Baghdadi-based government that is allied with Iran. We're protecting them from the Sunni insurgency. So isn't it true that during your time there and in perpetuity, aren't we always going to be on the hook for being the piñata from both sides? So, you know, the the Iran's going to have its hegemony through the Shia population. That's going to take off the Sunnis, and then the Sunnis are going to attack and we're right. going to get caught between both of them getting blown up
0: by both. You bring up a very important concept and point. Um, the reality is, is we're caught against two different groups that uh, in, in most cases, I mean, there's certain factions within the Shia population, Sunni population that, you know, admittedly have been friendly to Americans at times, but that's, that's mainly driven out of their own self-interest. These forces in many ways, without us in the middle We'll balance against each other and contain each other. Um, if we leave, you know, you hear this term, there's going to be this vacuum and that Iran will ultimately completely control Iraq and, and they will be the dominant power. Going back to what I said earlier, um, they they were they became the dominant power when we removed, removed some do- Saddam almost right away. Um, there's a great book called Twilight World War that that documents um, the history of the United States and Iran post-revolution post-1979, and during the section on on the Iraq War, it talks about as almost right away after the United States invasion, tens of thousands of uh, Iraqi exiles, in some cases, Iranian themselves, returned from Iran with groups like the Badr Brigades and others, and they started taking control of the levers of power. So Iran's always been the dominant power, but if we were to leave, they would affect the prize they would win is an extremely broken and fractured country with a lot of ethnic tensions, with a lot of factors that they now have to deal with, and the United States is not in the middle, as you alluded to, to help mitigate that. And I, I think that if you, um, you know, go back to why we're in, or, or not go back to, but if you want to discuss why we're in Iraq right now, I think there's two important points. Um, a few days ago, we suspended our counter ISIS mission. And we also suspended our training and equip mission of the Iraqi army, which is a good thing because we were in effect training and arming a military organization um, that is now wholly under control of Iran. And so we're giving high tech weapons to a group that is now a, a proxy of Iran. So they don't, we don't have those missions anymore. So the only reason that troops are in Iraq right now, and this is what the military has said, is for force protection. We are guarding bases, HESCO barriers, which are these, um, you know, plastic or paper and um, wire th- uh, things that are full of sand to create barriers. It's actually an ingenious invention. And then wooden huts and portajons w- 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 these are what are on our bases in Iraq. We're guarding bases that have no purpose anymore. So we're just there to in effect guard physical structures, that that have no purpose and we are exposing our troops to attacks from Iranian proxies and it is insanity to keep our our 5000 now actually up to 10000 if you count the troops that just went in country today troops there just to guard things that no longer have a purpose so it, it's insanity to keep our troops there we need to come home and and just finally admit that this this situation that we were in was you know th- was preordained when we made a decision to invade in two thousand and three
1: that that's the thing the cake was baked with Iran already yes, what I think the problem is that many and again this is the, this is the traditional dogma, really from what I would say three quarters of the elected Republicans, both elected or non- elected Republican officials and state defense um, think tanks, is that they criticize Obama for the wrong thing when it comes to Iraq and the wrong date and what what their strategy and we'll bring back to our audience how it applies to the here and now but to go back in history they basically want to say a different story than you said they want to say no no no, you don't understand the Iraq war it it had some issues the previous decade but under General Petraeus we got it under control with the surge we bought off the Sunni tribes in Anbar province We defeated the command and control of Al-Qaeda in Iraq there. Um, And we were well on our way to being to the promised land when suddenly Obama comes in there and Obama pulls out the troops. And then that created ISIS. And that's the problem that he pulled us out. And we're going to repeat that mistake again. (laughs) But isn't it true, Dan? that it's really the other way around. It's the fact that the mistake Obama made was he went back in a few years later with ISIS and bailed out the Shias and Iran from what would have been a Sunni insurgency that they had to deal with. We dealt with it for them. And isn't it true that with the very people, including the guy we killed along with Soleimani, we downright
0: worked with these dudes? the the story you told about you know obama and and uh the pullout in 2011 this this fairy tale that a lot of neoconservatives tell themselves that we won the war in 2011 um and that the pullout is the reason why that iraq is a basket case today is a myth and i think it's a story they tell themselves frankly so that they can sleep at night um and and so that they can ignore all the mistakes and bad policy that, that they've made that's cost us dearly in terms of lives and treasure. It's just historically not accurate. So I served in Iraq um, at the tail end of the surge, late 2008 um, through the summer of 2009. And a couple of things happened during that timeframe. One, we signed a status of forces agreement with the um, Iraqi government that mandated that by the end of 2011, we had to pull out. And then in June of 2009, and I was there when this happened, we had to pull out of all the cities. So that was a legal agreement that was signed by the Bush admin the, at the very end of the Bush administration and was implemented in the early part of the Obama administration. It was an agreement between two sovereign governments. So um, during that time that I was there, Iraq, in many cases, had become more safe and more stable uh, because of the tactical, and I emphasize tactical, successes of the surge. It was still dangerous. There were still issues with IEDs, with snipers. Um, we had these issues with, with these anti-tank grenades, which became a huge problem. Um, you had Sunni and Shia and, and uh, rockets still hitting our bases. Um, but it was not as bad as um, it was in 2004 and 2005. Yeah. In 2003, during the invasion, when a lot of the Marines I served with uh, first went over to Iraq. Uh, but... It was a fragile uh, time in Iraq still. The core structural issues that created the Iraqi insurgency, that created the tensions between the Sunnis, the Shias, and the Kurds in Northern Iraq had not been solved. They were not solved by the, the, the Kurds. The Iranian influence that had that increased after the invasion had not been diminished. So it was it was really, in reality, a tactical pause uh, for many of the Shia groups like the Mahdi Army which in 2008 you know in effect laid down their arms but they didn't go away and then al qaeda and iraq which eventually morphed into isis they most they still were conducting attacks but they mostly went into the desert and then when 2011 rolled around in the Syrian civil war most of them crossed into Syria to take advantage of the Syrian civil war and they started acquiring weapons they started yeah. building larger armies Um, little armies in some cases, you know, acquiring tanks and more vehicles and heavier weapons and preparing to go back in Iraq when they secured a base in Syria. So when 2011 rolled around, you know, when Obama was faced with this decision to pull out, he, he really only had, I'm not defending, you know, his foreign policy overall, but in terms of Iraq, there wasn't really a choice to pull out. We had a legal agreement, as I said earlier, with Iraq to leave by the end of 2011, the Iraqi parliament was not going to extend that agreement. So if it would have stayed, we would have probably come in conflict with certain factions of the Iraqi state. Um, We would have been in effect exposing our troops to more attacks from Iranian proxies. And during the last part of 2011, we had dozens of troops killed by heavy rockets supplied by the Iranians. And we would have been in an even more tenuous situation with more troops. And I don't believe we would have prevented the rise of ISIS because, as I said, al-Qaeda and Iraq, which morphed into ISIS and, and a faction also broke off to form al-Nusra, which is the direct al-Qaeda uh, descendant now in Syria, um, they they had gone into Syria and that's where they were building. And if we would have left just a few thousand troops as they were proposed, as some were proposing, you know, many of like the hawks and some people in the military were proposing, when ISIS came back in t- 2014, there would have just been more American targets for them to shoot at, yep. and it would not have benefited at all. The only end result we would have gotten from staying in Iraq from 2011 to 2014 when we came back in would have been more Americans killed. So, again, th- this this myth about Obama losing the war in 2011 is just a fairy tale that people like to tell themselves that, to, to try and backwards justify the invasion of Iraq and and. It's not backed up by by the facts on the ground or or history. Exactly, because it's
1: always the intractable intractable um, clan warfare that is always going to get you. It's not a matter of Al Qaeda or ISIS. I just like calling it the Sunni insurgency because yes. it's always going to be something. And there's one thing if Iraq were homogeneously Sunni, it would be hard right. enough to get you know, them to be pro-American and to work with us. But you could theoretically say, look, hey, you got Iran right next door. Hey, you don't want that. And we can work with them. But because slightly more than a majority is not Sunni, it's Shia. So, you know, forever you're going to have that. And then therefore forever you're going to have the reaction to it. It's a matter of who owns it. Do we get to own it or does Iran own it? And that's why why I feel the criticism of Obama is that he joined. And this was bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats have this obsession with ISIS, wherever ISIS is in a vacuum. If it's in Niger, if it's in Mali, if it's in Syria, if it's in Afghanistan, if it's Iraq, we have to counter it with no understanding of, A, well, do they affect us like with Africa or are you downright empowering Iran, which is always going to be a bigger strategic threat relatively than the non-nation state um, Sunnis? So, in fact, what Obama wound up doing, and this is what it looks like Trump is starting to rectify, is weren't we literally serving as the
0: Shiite Air Force for the last number of years? I mean, in many ways, we were. Now, um, I think that that um, there is an argument that, that ISIS reached a point in 2014 2015 where they did pose a threat to American interests in the region. Now, that does not mean that we throw out all the lessons we had learned in the previous 12 years from the Iraq war and our experiences with counterinsurgency in Afghanistan um, and in Iraq, and then the disaster of the Libya intervention that occurred you know, three years before we ramped up intervention again in Iraq. Um, we have an ability, we have capabilities to conduct long range strikes against targets Um, we have you know incredible capabilities in terms of surveillance through our drones through our uh, um, uh, NSA listening technology as long as it's not turned on Americans Um, and actually if you look at this was demonstrated a few times prior to us ramping up um, our intervention again in, in Iraq and then eventually Syria with ground troops we conducted several special operations raids. They were hostage, hostage rescue primarily um, in er, the, the early part of 2014. Mm-hmm. And that was out without a huge infrastructure in Iraq or Syria. Now, those I want to be clear, those missions are incredibly dangerous, but um, they have a smaller footprint and a ultimately smaller cost. Although, again, I want to be clear, lives are still in danger here and lives of, of sure. men and women who are the most highly trained and and, and effective force. But still, um, I, I think that it is reasonable to say, look, our response to ISIS should not require ramping up our military footprint in Iraq permanently again, and in effect, subsidizing um, groups that are friendly to the Iranians. Because by doing that, we are therefore allowing the Iranians to devote less resources to um counterinsurgency on their own borders, to military conventional capabilities on their own borders, so that they have to fight ISIS, which is a mortal threat to them. And they can then take more resources and put it in things that are a threat to us. Like you mentioned uh, the the threat they pose to the Strait of Hormuz. They can invest more in their navy. They can send more money to Hezbollah. Um, by having them deal with ISIS, it benefits us in the long term uh because them down not us yes yeah just like they've had to send thousands of hezbollah fighters to syria to save the assad regime that's thousands of hezbollah fighters that are less of a threat to our our other friends in the region
1: and hezbollah's rear end was getting kicked no end the lebanese hezbollah until we came in there and we took care of ISIS for them i remember around 2016 it was bad I mean, the Hezbo's never suffered so, so many casualties. They were devastated. But now they had a couple years to regroup because we bailed them out. And this yes. is what bothers me. Again, I'm a, I I love killing bad guys. But I mean, you got to question which bad guys in which theater because there's multiple bad guys fighting each other. And I feel like we never learn those lessons and give a holistic view. So So right now, what I hear is, They keep saying contradictory things at the same time, both in the Iraqi theater and in Syria. So in Syria, they say, well, you know, you know, if we pull out Assad's going to be strong. If we pull out ISIS is going to make a resurgence." Well, they're fighting each other. I mean, which one? And then in Iraq, they say, I mean, you see, it. you wrote about this the same same ones. If we pull out, Iran will control more. If we pull out ISIS will come back. So. Implicit in their words, if I would try to articulate that position, I think is that there's some sort of premise that in each theater, there's some sort of entity that's not insufferably pro-Iranian Shia. It's not Sunni terrorists that we could work with, we could discover, but that's only the first half. And then after sinking our treasure through direct kinetic force, a lot of aid, military training to whatever entity that is, it Mm -hmm. could hold together in Syria, Assad, the Hezbo's, Nusra, all the Sunni constituencies, the Alawites, the Turks, the Kurds, and in Iraq could hold together the Shias, the Sunnis. Is is that what they're saying? I mean, I I don't,
0: I'm trying to figure out what
1: that even means.
0: I think they're still driven by this fantasy, which they're, you know, that the many what we you can call neoconservatives, primacists, liberal internationalists, whatever label you use, I, just just for simplicity's sake, say interventionists. I think there's still this fantasy that they're they're less willing to say out loud these days. They're more willing to say it, you know, out loud from 2003 to 2007, 2008. That somehow there's still going to be this liberal democracy that emerges in, in Baghdad or, you know, in the Kurdish region of Syria or Iraq that will become a, a beacon of hope for the rest of the Middle East and that will stabilize things. And it's it's nonsense. It it, it 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 ignores the reality of the cultures in the region, the ethnic tensions, the history of the region, the fact that you know you have um, Gulf states. That, you know, are imperfect, but the most stable states in the regions, whether it's UAE or Jordan or Egypt, are nowhere near yeah. what you would define as liberal democracies. And what we learned from Libya, what we learned from Iraq, what, we've, what we're learning now in, in Yemen to some extent is that when you remove these strongmen, when you remove these these imperfect, and often case I think it's fair to say evil individuals, more evil emerges. Um, one thing I'd I'd like to, to say in regards to Syria, and this 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 has come up a lot, um, and you're seeing it again as as a way to kind of take a shot at Trump, and it has to do with our so-called Kurdish allies in Syria. And mm-hmm. and a lot of people point to them as like this is a force that could do a lot of good in the Middle East, and may, you know, yep. somewhat in that 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 mold that you just described. You know, the Syrian Kurds are in many ways, what I've described as as Marxist, they follow kind of a Marxist Maoist ideology. They actually fight with our Kurdish allies in Iraq, who I spent some time with the, the Kurds in Erbil, with the Kurdish Democratic Party don't like yeah. the ones in in Rojova. In yeah, and so they are are an example of a partner that had a shared interest, which I think there was some value in working with, you know, for a time, but long term. Sure. We sh- should not be a justification for staying in Syria forever. Um I, mean, I think Trump, to an extent, has realized that, you know we have pulled back somewhat in Syria. I think we should go to zero, to be honest. Um, yeah. but they 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 ultimately were prevented by us from doing things that were in their interest, mainly making a deal with the Russians and the Assad regime to um you know have some type of sovereignty within Syria. And that made these things worse, what they went through back in October. Um, And that was the mistake, not allowing them to do this earlier in 2019, as opposed to pulling out. So I think that's an important point, an important discussion to have as we withdraw.
1: They were never going to be able to control that far west into Syria. It just, they're they're not. They didn't want to. I would love for Iraq to be Kurdish. But I mean, the reality is they're not going to be able to control that. So any investment we put into that will be a failed venture. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I'm curious what your thoughts are. We have Colonel Dan Steiner on a lot. He has you know, as an airman, he was an, has an Air Force perspective. And what he always bemoans is that so much of our focus, I know you are on the ground, is, is with ground troops. And it's with mm-hmm. it's, you know, let's say the Army. And. The, but if you look at the reality of the way the conflicts are in this era, there is not much we can do on the ground in any given area. You don't have right. a Germany circa 1945 or a Japan um, like like, you know, I, I know when, when we spoke together the other day, I said, you know, theoretically, if Russia would invade Europe today. So you could say that's something mm-hmm. you could work with them. It's their stable democracies. They, they don't want Russia. Russia's an external problem. You kick them out and you preserve what you've invested. But all these countries, there's nothing to work with, either because of the clan wars, because of the incompetence, you know, whether it's in Niger or Mali or Somalia. No one has even explained what it is you are working with. It's not a matter of, oh, I oppose that intervention. I don't know what that intervention is, meaning what what is it that we could hold? I can't even explain in two, three sentences what it is we're doing in any of these places. So, you know, kind of bringing this full circle where we are, where we are today. Now, I don't like looking like we're servile to the Iraqi parliament. You know, they kick us out, you know kind of give in to them. But what would you feel is would be the strongest posture, the most responsible way of winding this down there?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think the, the smartest thing you could do is to start winding it down and start pulling out today. I don't think that it would be, you know, some folks would, would say it's a sign of weakness, that that we're, we're, you know, we're leaving the country with our tail tucked between our legs. At the end of the day, it's insanity to leave now 10,000 troops in Iraq with no mission. Their only mission seems to honestly be you know, exposed to Iraqi, or Iranian rocket attacks and snipers and truck bombs. I mean, that's, the, that's all they're there for, is just to be targets. And that's insanity. It's not a sign of weakness if we start pulling out. We stop throwing money and resources and lives uh, down this bottomless well in Iraq. It's, it's it, the smart thing to do is to recognize, as we've said before, we lost this fight in 2003. It's not in our national interest to remain in, in Iraq. It's not critical to our national security or our physical safety here in the United States. We need those forces for other issues. We need to invest in other areas. We've neglected our Navy and Air Force through these counterinsurgency fights. We really need to start withdrawing, not just from Iraq, but Afghanistan and Syria too, so we can really truly start orienting ourselves towards deterring great power conflict and getting ready for the next fight, um, which we've been talking about for years, but but honestly haven't taken real serious action towards doing. So that's the best course. And and again, just to reemphasize, we're not we're not admitting defeat or we're not losing this war by pulling out now because we've already lost the That's war. That's written off. It, yeah. Exactly.
1: And, and, and just the opposite the way I look at it, it is if Iran gets really belligerent and starts blowing up the Persian Gulf we mm-hmm. could totally kick their rear ends. And and when I Correct. say that I don't mean like going into Tehran and owning their stuff. No. We could just kill their 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 um you know military and break their stuff. As of now, we can't do that because we have our troops flung out precariously we, in Iraq with a noose of their Shia allies that we have been working with around their necks.
0: Iran is is dangerous to our troops because we've allowed them to be. Because we've created this force posture in the Middle East that has created easy targets for Iranian proxies, for groups like Hezbollah. And for I- Iranian rockets that compared to like Tomahawk cruise missiles are a lot cheaper. And they're a lot cheaper than the Iranians buying new Russian fighter jets or building new frigates or submarines. It, it, our posture in the Middle East and, and some individuals I work with uh, kind of you know taught me about this concept. And it's, it's a good one is that it, it allows the Iranians to meddle with us on the cheap. It's not very expensive yep. to build an IED or to build an EFP um, or to build one of these IRAM rockets, especially when compared to the cost of an M1 Abrams or an MRAP or an expensive base defense system that we have in Iraq, um, it, it, it's it's very cheap for the Iranians to harm us in ways that cost us a lot in terms of lives and money and equipment. Yep. And you know, you and I kind of talked about this, too, and I think this is important for your your listeners to know, and, and you've alluded to it, and I think I've alluded to it, too. During these counterinsurgency wars in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, we have, as a result of the investment we've had to make in certain ground forces capabilities, we've really neglected our Navy and Air Force. Wow. During the Bush administration, despite record level def- uh, defense spendings, our Navy shrunk by 60,000 sailors. We had to retire ships earlier than we would have liked, we had to delay construction programs. From 2011 or 2007 to 2012, we retired nearly 500 tactical aircraft earlier than we would have liked to. And it was for two reasons. One was because of airframe wear and tear, because of repeated use in Iraq and Afghanistan and eventually um, Syria and Libya, uh, and also because of F-35. But a lot of these weapon systems that we would need in a fight against Russia or China, like the B-1 bombers... We are using in Iraq and Syria and the B-1 bomber is a critical strategic asset, but they have about it that the B-1 bomber fleet has only about a 10 percent, 15 percent readiness rate right now because they've been so overused in Afghanistan. So if there's a war with China, um, God forbid, um, or North Korea, that asset will be limited because we've overused them and they know literal huts in, in Afghanistan. I'm saying they all these countries know it. They're laughing. Oh, yeah. China, China and Russia love the fact that we've been tied down in the Middle East um, and that economically China's benefited from it. You know, there's this kind of myth. Well, look, I'm critical of, of the invasion to defend Iraq, but there was this myth that it was a war for oil. And Trump's kind of alluded for this. I, I you know, <laughs> candidly don't like his remarks about saying taking the oil, but he's kind of bringing up an important point by saying that that. The people that benefited the most from us opening up those Iraqi oil fields, in many cases, weren't American companies. They were Chinese companies, in some cases, Russian companies, French companies. Yep. And, and, and we have increased, you know, uh, Chinese energy opportunities in some ways through our, uh, our economic and military policies in Iraq. In addition to tying down our military and, and neglecting the capabilities that we would need in a conflict with them. We, we deplete
1: our resolve and our resources where it doesn't matter. And then it's it's not there for us when we need it. And it, it it's exactly like you said, it's a thought process I've come to recently that it sounds very simplistic, but I think it's very true. Again, Colonel Dan always talks about this. When you look at the air and naval superiority, it is so hard for the Iranians or anyone else to penetrate that because that plays to our strength. Why? Because air and water, <laughs> don't have constituencies they don't have tribal clans um so we could we could control that with brute force whereas when you're dealing with the middle eastern countries and a lot of them really aren't countries Mm -hmm. in an ancient sense especially iraq syria and afghanistan they're just a collection of tribal lands you could have the most expensive hardware in there but all it takes is some rpg fire the roadside bombs because there you're dealing with, you know, a squadron of soldiers walking precariously in a marketplace where you can't just come in and blow everything up because officially everyone's a civilian. Right. But at any point, anyone could come and plant a bomb or blow himself up. And that's how we got all our casualties. It wasn't in this great kinetic to kinetic force. And that's the lesson of insurgencies that it seems like none of us have learned Um What I've noticed from some of these like Lindsey Graham type of Republicans, if you listen to what they're saying, I think they really admit the following. There is no purpose to having 10,000 troops in Afghanistan or 10, 12, something like that. Likewise, in Syria and Iraq. You really need 130, 150,000 in perpetuity, bribing everyone we can to maybe Put a band-aid temporarily on at a very painful cost, but then even A, you can't do that everywhere. And then B, at some point they're all just gonna rebel against you, um, just resent yeah. your presence there. So that's the it's kind of a checkmate. But I think like you said, the good news is why do we have to have an answer to that? Why do we even have to do that? Let's i, mean, I think and I think you would agree with me. We're not saying pull out all of our naval assets from the Middle yes. East, pull out everything, and come home. We're saying be smarter and more strategic about it.
0: Uh, correct. I, I, I mean, I do think we need to downsize significantly in the Middle East. Um, but you know, there are certain assets and capabilities that we we want to um, have available in the region if, if if necessary. And I think that it goes, the important thing to discuss with the Middle East is, you know, why is it important to us today? And I think first off, we need to admit that it's not important, as important to us as it was 30 years ago. Yeah. One, the Cold War's over. That was really a justifiable impetus for us getting involved in the Middle East. We didn't want the Soviets to be a dominant force. That's a big reason why we we really first started backing Israel a lot was because they were fighting against Soviet proxy states. Um, we didn't want the Soviets to control the the energy resources there or get access, you know, by taking over Iran to warm water ports in the in the Persian Gulf. Now the Cold War's over. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s the Middle East was important because it was a primary source of well not a primary but an important source of energy for the United States and the world. But in the in the in the proceeding years we've had a shale revolution in the United States. We've had other energy res- resources open up around the world, um, you know, whether it's in Canada, Mexico, other states, Africa, uh, Western Africa, for example. So the Middle East, in that regard, isn't as important as it once was. Really, our priorities in the Middle East involve you know, ensuring that a threat to the American homeland from Shia and Sunni terrorism doesn't emerge. And to fight that threat, We don't need 250,000 troops and a massive military, continuous military operation in the region to do that. And also, too, one thing we don't want to have happen is one regional hegemon to emerge. And in in many cases, we don't need to engage militarily for that to happen. That's more about soft power and and economic power and political pressure. And, And it doesn't require that much pressure because of the different ethnic and religious forces that already exists in the region. You know, Iran, for example, uh, Iran is is without the Americans in the region is still contained by countries like Pakistan, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. All they really have is part of Iraq with the Shia population and an Alawite minority in Syria, and then a Shia minority, or I think they' are majority now in Lebanon, I'm hundred percent sure, but that's really all they got. And, and the more they it. press on the gas pedal there, the more they're going to get catch hell for it exactly. and And some of those relationships are tenuous. Like Assad is very close to Iranians, but there is always this small distance between Assad and the Iranians because there are Iranian clerics that viewed the Alawites, which is a branch of Shia Islam. As heretics, um, and of course Assad is, is Arab, and there's that Arab Persian tension yeah. as well. And part of our failed foreign policy in the Middle East has pushed Assad closer to Iran. Um, but um, you know that that's kind of an important point, and and I think we need to get out of this mindset that you know the Middle East is absolutely critical to our safety and security. Yeah. We shouldn't completely ignore it, but. It should no longer be the primary focus of our national security efforts.
1: Just for perspective, um, one fiscal year, ICE put detainers on people subject in totality to 2,500 homicide charges, 14,000 sexual offense charges, 2,500 kidnappings, 50,000 assaults. And a a good share of that comes from our southern border border. Which our military national security, homeland security apparatus in, in the executive branch, DHS, state, DOD, refuse to view as a military problem, the need to have our military right. more aggressively deployed there to prevent these people from coming, the cartels, the transnational gangs. I mean, the number of gang members that come over, these are dead bodies killing Americans. I mean, it's not like, well, maybe if we get this part of the Middle East and do this, yeah. well, this will happen. I mean, this is straight up, but they don't. My my problem is that um, the 9-11 Staff Commission report said that the problem was at the time, and they noted already in 2004, three years after 9-11, it was still that way, mm-hmm. that our national security apparatus, I'm paraphrasing here, has refused to view immigration and visas as the cornerstone of national security right. that was the lesson of 9/11 I think it's still that way
0: so i i you know i think that when we're talking about what's going on in our own hemisphere and you know to be honest um, i i personally have some concerns about the military mission on the border and how our troops are being used but putting that aside and you know we might have Um, you know, how we prioritize certain things with our immigration system. We have disagreements on that. But putting all that aside for a second, it is definitely fair to say that what happens in Mexico and what happens in Central and Southern America is of more concern to us than what happens in the Middle East. And I think that 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 needs to be said more. Um, I'm, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, I still think is our most important foreign policy doctrine. And so, Yep. Um, I don't, I don't agree with a intervention in Venezuela or regime change there. It's they're not Venezuela is not Iraq, yeah. but you know that yeah, that I, is a situation should that should be not We should handle Mexico
1: in the same way we handle Iraq. Yeah, it's the same lesson, right. but it's it just the point is all these people yelping about, oh, yeah, we don't want Russia to get influence, dude. I, I, I got news for you: Ru- Russia, China, and Iran by the way, have tremendous influence in, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, um, many, many countries throughout our own hemisphere. But it just seems like the military leadership doesn't view that as a pro- problem. And why is it that the inertia always seems to fall back to the Middle
0: East? Well, you know, that's a good question. And I, I think that... um. When we're talking about any government institution and when we're talking about the State Department or the Pentagon, um, it's important to say they're not unitary entities, meaning that there are factions within each institution that that believe different things. That said, I think that speaking about the military, in the Middle East specifically, I think you got a, a couple of things going on and specifically the military leadership is you currently have a military leadership that. Has come up to the ranks, cutting their teeth in the Middle East. You know, the people that were leading companies and were battalion officers, actually most of the battalion officers in Desert Storm, like General Mattis, have retired, but they were company commanders in Desert Storm. That was their first big combat command. They probably did multiple rotations to um, Kuwait or other parts of the Middle East before 9-11. And then many of them have been fighting in nine you know in the post nine eleven wars continuously since two thousand and one. Many of them have had you know double digit deployments. So that's been their focus. That's been the thing that that has formed and shaped them as warriors. So I think that there's a natural tendency among some of them to gravitate towards that region and yeah. to resist efforts to wind it down because of, in some cases, a personal connection to it. And just kind of a belief that, look, we were failed by this or that, or the State Department screwed us over, which in many cases they did. Um, and that's the reason we lost. Now, again, that's not all military leaders. I think the Marine Corps Commandant, General Berger, um, is looking to slaughter some sacred cows in, in terms of how the Marine Corps has fought wars and been structured. I think there's been others that have been willing to step out and say that, look, we need to rethink things in Afghanistan. So it's not everybody, but. Um, I think there's that. And I I just think that to be honest too, the military leadership, I think we need to respect our military, but we shouldn't treat them as gods that are that are, you know, above criticism. The military hasn't been truly challenged by Congress or the executive branch to really think through things differently. Yeah. Um, And the military has gotten very good, not in all cases, the leadership of forcing the executive branch and Congress into corners or, in effect, you know, getting to a place where they won't be challenged. But, it, you know, at the same time, too, um, I think the military has also been outmaneuvered itself. There's been times when the military has been more of a voice for restraint. You know, in Syria, people like General Dunford and and, and even General Mattis, for, and I know, Daniel, you, you have your disagreements with him, they were they were oftentimes a voice for restraint in like overthrowing Assad. Mm-hmm. The military was not a, a fan of what happened in, in Libya. Bizarrely, it's sometimes those voices in uniform, the ones saying, let's not start new conflicts, but at the same time are also resistant to ending some of the ones that we currently have going on. And again, it's not everybody. You see a lot of support, I think below the general officer level, colonels, lieutenant colonels, that recognize that hey, this hasn't worked for the last eighteen years. Now we gotta we gotta do something differently.
1: That's what I'm curious. We're we're about out of time, but just to end off here, from speaking to those that you served with in Iraq at that time, about a decade ago. You know, I didn't even want to say this a decade ago. It was mm-hmm. around 2009 that I started saying, "Hey, I think this whole thing was a mistake." It took a little while to come to that realization. But how many have really realized that and are like, as as painful as it is, we lost over 5,000 people, tens of thousands wounded, trillions of dollars spent,
0: all to make Iran more powerful. I mean, is that understood? Oh, oh, absolutely. Now, I, I'm i sure that many of your listeners and maybe you yourselves aren't the biggest fans of the New York Times, but... A reporter there who covers veterans, Jennifer Steinhauer, wrote an outstanding story um, at the beginning of November about veterans changing views on foreign policy. And polling and other research has shown that overwhelmingly veterans recognize, even slightly more than the population at large, that um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have not been worth it. Um, I think we're all proud of our service. I'm proud of what I did. Um, I, you know, other than being a dad, the title I'm most proud of is United States Marine. I'm not one of these guys that's going to go and throw, you know, my ribbons. I didn't get a whole lot of medals, but, you know, um, you know, throw my medals or, or over the fence like John Kerry did in, in the Vietnam war protesters. But I think majority of veterans recognize that these wars haven't been well fought and they haven't been worth it when, you, when it, it, when taken into account, the effect on our national security and, and our nation as a whole, um, and I think that this is this is an important lesson, and, and this is you know one thing that I think is important to close on. I think this is an important lesson for the Trump administration. This is not 2004. Being hawkish, being viewed as as more interventionist, being viewed as strong is important, but being viewed as more interventionist is, is not to one's political benefit. There's a fascinating academic study done by two political science professors that went in and looked at the counties that flipped from Obama to Trump in 2016. Mm. They had one thing in common. This was in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. They had higher levels of military sacrifice, meaning deployments, killed in action, wounded in action, than um, other counties in those states. And that was a common thread in those three states. So Trump very well might have won the 2016 election based on the perception that he was less interventionist than Hillary Clinton. Now, that doesn't mean being viewed as weak, Sure. but at the same time, there is not a political benefit for any politician in the long run to being supportive of these endless wars in the Middle East. Exactly. And I think you said it very well
1: with, you know, the special forces. Um, Their missions are incredibly dangerous, but we kind of understood what they were. There's one thing you send them in, do this and leave. They're dangerous, but that's what they do. Versus indefinitely leaving them as like a quasi-conventional force in Afghanistan. End on end for 10 deployments. Yes. Just putting a whole nation together or all over Africa and we don't even know what they're doing. That's the article I'm going to have out today. We need an operational audit. And this is really what Congress needs to do. And 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 there's no reason why everyone can't get together. It's not even a right or left thing. Just do an operational audit. What is it we are doing there? Yeah. Who are we backing? Why? What is it we hope to accomplish? And then you could do a cost-benefit analysis. Sometimes it might be worth it, sometimes not. But let's articulate that. And um, Sadly, I don't expect that to happen. It's just going to be virtue signaling because Democrats yeah. are like Iran as an end to itself. Orange man, bad. You know, everyone mm-hmm. else will, you know, respond to that. And, you know, we're not mm-hmm. going to have a mature debate again. But I think that's the point that Congress has never challenged the military to come mm-hmm. up with a better strategy. The military is just going to operate on the status quo except for a couple of those lone voices. Um, Any closing thoughts, Dan, before we wrap it up?
0: Um, I would just encourage um, your listeners to, when they see, and you start off the segment this way, when you're talking about some of the voices on CNN and whatnot, is that when you see somebody talking on, on CNN or MSNBC and even Fox News, and they have like some title with some DC think tank, or there's some retired diplomat or some retired official from the Obama and Bush administration. when they're done with the segment, Google them. And more often than not, those individuals will be involved in things like the Iraq war or the Libya intervention. Unfortunately, a majority of the voices that are in the media on foreign policy have been wrong for most of their professional careers, And there's not accountability within the foreign policy elite. Um people like Bill Crystal, who have been wrong about almost everything in their professional career in terms of foreign policy, are still elevated as credible voices. And that's something that has to change. The only way we're going to change it is if people stop listening and stop subscribing and stop viewing folks uh, on TV or in print that are consistently wrong on anything. So again, next time you see somebody like Mark Thiessen from the Bush administration on Fox News, Google them and see what they've been involved with, and I think you'll see that you probably shouldn't be listening to them when it comes to foreign policy.
1: Well said, Dan. I mean, that's the thing. we got to learn the mistakes of the past. We first have to understand what those mistakes were. This was very sobering but much needed. Thanks so much for joining us. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Looking forward to having you back again.
0: I, I look forward to it too. Thank you, Daniel.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dan Caldwell of Concerned Veterans of America. Look, send me your comments, concerns, questions at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. We'll have this show up and send it around everywhere. Very important. Um, you know, look, we covered a lot, a lot of issues in that segment. Uh tremendously informative. Um, and and I think you could tell he really speaks from the heart. Um, he he's really concerned. This is a guy who served there. And and again, you know. I'm I'm very balanced, you know, to me it's not an all an on or off button of intervene or not. You have to understand what we're doing, what is a threat. Um I do still think Iran is a threat in many ways, but I I my my concern is that a lot of my allies on this issue, you would say, that are also concerned about Iran have made a lot of mistakes and Because of their other advocacies, they've actually weakened our ability to properly deter Iran. Um, I just want to close with that. Tomorrow, I will be in the D.C. office. Um, Got some special work there, but we will still make sure to get our show in despite the busy day. Until tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.